it almost feels like GoFundMe has become like a rite of passage of extremely difficult life situations. It's like, oh man, like someone else had, you know, some unthinkable event happen in their life that now they need assistance for. And it's just so, it's just so hard to see, you know. Ryan Parker is a digital marketer with an eye to becoming a UX designer. And he lives in Provo, Utah. Now, back on March 21st, Ryan became a dad. His wife, Shay, was induced just the night before. Now, doctors were worried about Shay's blood pressure, but baby Dorothy came out just fine. Yeah, it was incredible to finally see our baby outside of me and finally be born. Two days later, they all get to go home. But then things start to go bad for Ryan. He got a text message from a coworker, and all she said was something along the lines of, Ryan, I'm so sorry. The rest of us were laid off too. It's scary enough to have a baby in the hospital in the middle of the pandemic, but it's a whole other thing to then come home and lose your job too. All sorts of things are going through my head of, are we going to have to like move out, like homeless? Um, What other jobs are out there that I could take? So they're home for two days thinking about this. But then Shay's blood pressure starts spiking again. I was starting to have some blurry vision. They're sent back to the hospital, and they have to spend the night. But also because of the coronavirus, no one under the age of 18 was allowed into the hospital. And so newborn Dorothy had to stay home with grandma. It was hard to leave their new baby behind. So I just remember feeling like kind of a lot of whiplash, I guess. Then, in the midst of all this turmoil, a friend reaches out. He wants to help. He texted me and said, hey, we want to set up a GoFundMe for you guys. And my first thought as someone who never wants to be a burden to anyone ever was, oh gosh, no, we can't do this. <laughs> like A GoFundMe? Like, asking for money? We can't, we can't like... GoFundMe is a crowdfunding site, and a lot of people use it when things go bad in their lives. You create a page, and you share your story, and then you set a funding goal. And over in the sidebar, people can track how that goal is doing, and also how many people are giving. It was literally a number showing how much people cared about us, it felt like. I know that's irrational, that's not really what it was. But it felt like, oh, if we only get $100, that means, you know, people only care about us $100 worth. The risk here is not every campaign hits its goal. Fortunately, this one did. The donations kept coming, and I think they ended up around $6,000, which was so much more than we ever would have thought. It meant the world to us, honestly. Crowdfunding is when you get a lot of people to give a little bit of money to fund a project, an event, or a charitable cause. Since launching 10 years ago, GoFundMe users have given over $9 billion. Nonprofits, artists, entrepreneurs, people like Ryan and Shay, they all use crowdfunding to unlock new ways to ask for help. So, how do you design a user experience that gets a donor's attention, encourages them to give, and then gives some more? I'm Koi Vin, Senior Director of Design at Adobe. And this is Wireframe, a show about how design shapes technology to fit into our lives. An original podcast from Adobe XD. 
With Adobe XD, you can design experiences that connect people and causes. XD helps you quickly create and share UI and UX designs for websites, apps, voice interfaces, and beyond. Make your design workflow faster and easier with one tool to wireframe, design, prototype, animate, and so much more. Try Adobe XD for free and see how it can help you design your next big idea. Learn more at adobe.com slash tryxd. The conversation around how we give and who we give to has taken on so much more importance over these past few months. The coronavirus pandemic forced more of us than ever to ask for help. In fact, the CEO of GoFundMe reported a big spike in campaigns, as much as 60%. At one point, one out of every three new campaigns was related to COVID-19 in some way. Then, in May and June, thousands of people took to the streets across the United States, protesting racism and police brutality. And that brought another spike in crowdfunding campaigns in support of these protesters. And this got us thinking, how are these crowdfunding platforms designed to make us give? We decided to look at three examples to see what we can learn. This time, producer Dominic Girard is helping out. He's dialing in from his closet in Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, hi, Koi. I'm definitely in my closet, but you're in your basement in Brooklyn, so I don't know which one of us has it better or which one of us has it worse. But hey, at least we're still making a podcast, right? Yeah, we're very lucky to be able to keep on doing this even during this time. So how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Because of this first crowdfunding site that we're about to talk about, I can get a little cheesy and start by saying that I'm really chuffed to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Chuffed. So why don't you make sure that everybody understands what chuffed means? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, it's Australian. It means uh, feeling happy or proud, right? I'm chuffed to be here. The CEO explained this to me. Um, His name is Prashan Paramanathan. We called the platform Chuffed because we wanted people to feel proud and happy about giving to great causes. So it's a nice sentiment, right, for a charity fundraiser. But it's also key to understanding how Chuffed designed their user experience. So from what I can tell, Chuffed is a crowdfunding site that's mostly used by smaller nonprofits. Yeah, that's right. And they can use it for free. And Chuffed exists because prior to this, Prashan started his career in the nonprofit sector. And he was looking around and he thought there had to be a better way to connect donors to social causes. What I was seeing in the sector was that there were hundreds of thousands of organizations and people doing incredible work that weren't getting any money or recognition for that work. Then on the donation side, what we were seeing was our friends who you know, were socially conscious, they were getting, I'd say, jaded with how charities were operating and how the donation experience happened for them. And we were kind of losing them in the sector. In other words, he was seeing that not enough people were giving to charity and Mm -hmm. that there's not enough credit for smaller organizations doing that charitable work. Yeah, yeah, not enough credit, not even enough awareness of them for that matter. So with his team, he sets out to design a user experience based on three principles to help with that. Uh, Be transparent, make it personal, and, well, don't make donors feel guilty. Okay, why don't you start with the guilt thing, because that sounds really relatable. (laughs) Right? Okay, Koi, take a look at this photo. Now, describe what you see. 
Opening it up. <laughs> it's a little puppy with uh, his little paws propped up on a chain link fence like he wants to be adopted. <laughs> now, if I show you that photo and then ask you, Koi, will you give a donation to an animal shelter? I don't know if you'd do it, but you'd at least think about giving, right? Yeah, I get it. I mean, guilt is a really useful fundraising tool, I imagine. I mean, why else would you use it? Yeah, yeah. Guilt is also just one of many different tactics you can use to fundraise. But Prashan is just not a fan. There's a difference between what works and what should we be doing as fundraising. Does putting a starving child in front of a group of parents in middle-class New York City work? Sure, it works. You can get money out of them. Is that the best way of building a long-term relationship with those donors? I don't think it is. And if there are any campaigns that have guilt imagery, we ask the campaigner to take them down or we don't let them run on shaft. Yeah, it sounds like he's making sure people feel good about everything that they discover on the site. Like you said, he wants people to feel chuffed about giving. Yeah, right. Which is why you'll see happiness all over the site. They've designed a landing page that features a photo of smiling children, for example. We want to move fundraising from being about interrupting people with photos of starving kids to engaging people with inspiring stories that they can be part of. So... That's how they get started, and this takes us to number two of his three design principles. Make it personal. So, Koi, when you're on the landing page, you can see that there's a list of categories that you can browse. A list of social causes. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I see environment, sports, there's one for animals, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And if I like, I can dive into any of these. And you can filter it too. You can pick a social cause, pick what part of the world you want to support. You can list the causes in order of, you know, what's trending or what's raising the most money or what's new. We can tailor what you see based on things that you might be interested in. No single charity can do that because they need to sell their thing. This isn't really groundbreaking, though, is it, Dom? I mean, it's basically how e-commerce works. Yeah, exactly, which I think makes it kind of a smart design choice. You you take what's familiar to a consumer who's used to buying, but instead you apply it to charity. I see. Go with what works. Yeah, and it narrows the path, right, from getting your attention to getting your credit card, which takes us to principle number three, uh, transparency. Okay. Chuffed doesn't take a dime of your donation. And they want donors to see that that's the case very clearly. When you donate $100, the $100 goes straight through the charity. Here is how much the card fees are on top of that that we have to pay to transact online. Uh, And then you can choose to give to us on top of that. Yeah, that's true. If I'm giving to charity, my money, I really want 100% of it to go to the cause that I'm supporting. And it's not always clear that that's the case. Right. It's that issue of, you know, how much of my money is actually going to the cause, how much is paying for admin costs or the photocopier, that kind of thing. Exactly. So Chuffed does not take a cut, but, you know, it still has to fund itself. And it's the last bit of what Prashan just said that I find super interesting. He says, you can choose to give to us on top of that. Chuffed designed a platform that runs on tips. Oh, as in if you like your 
giving experience on Shuffed, you give them a few dollars and help them keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And take a look at how they designed the donation page. You'll notice that first you're asked how much you want to give to the cause you've selected. Then you decide whether you're giving one time or giving monthly and so on. But then notice that there's this little drop-down menu they've built. Yeah, it says, thanks for tipping chuff.org. And then it also says optional. Yeah, and you can give them a few bucks, which is usually a percentage of the donation you're making. So they really leave it up to me to decide. And the fact that it's optional makes sure that I don't feel guilty if I decide not to tip. Yeah, and Chuff was one of the first platforms of its kind to launch with this tipping revenue strategy. And you can imagine that at first, Prashan was pretty nervous about it. So we thought from a principal's perspective, the tipping model was better. But the main concern in our pros and cons list was, like, does anyone tip? Because if nobody tips, then you make no money and you can't support your platform. But it must be working, right? Because we wouldn't be talking about this as a good idea otherwise. (laughs) Right. And these optional donations, as they also call them, it right now makes up about half of total revenue. The rest comes from grants and investment. The goal, though, is to eventually be completely tip-supported. So you said that they were one of the first to adopt this optional donation model. Yeah. And you know I've noticed it in a few other places as well, uh, especially when I make uh, political donations. Yeah, and even GoFundMe now runs on an optional donation model. This is something they adopted in 2017. Yeah, so there's something to this. People actually do like the tip. Yeah, and the transparency that it brings to the donor experience, it also goes both ways. Because, I mean, what is a tip? It's cash for a job well done. And Prashan says that that incentive actually impacts how they make every design decision. For us, the optional donation forces you to continually improve and create a great experience for donors because they can just switch off the tap straight away. You know, that's really great. It's the idea that the users are incentivizing the designers to continuously improve that platform. I think there's a really valuable lesson there for any organization about the power and the importance of design. Okay, so Chuff's main design principles, as you said, Dom, they are based on transparency, personalization, and guilt-free content. Mm -hmm. And that's terrific. But my question, are the social causes themselves that are using Chuffed, are they actually getting funded? I mean, I wouldn't compare this platform to a juggernaut like GoFundMe, but on Chuffed, donors have so far given a little over $50 million dollars to more than 15,000 campaigns around the world. And they're small campaigns, right? So yeah, Chuffed has good reason to feel both happy and proud about the work that they're doing. So the other thing I'm noticing with Chuffed is that there are a lot of design elements here that show up again and again on other crowdfunding sites. Right, you're talking about things like the project blog updates or the video posts or the reward tiers you can unlock when you pick greater donations, that kind of stuff. Exactly. There's an animated progress bar that shows how close a campaign is to completing its goal. Yeah. There are a bunch of visual cues and content goodies like that that are familiar. Right. It's how we're convinced to engage and and give more. But that goal completion widget that you mentioned, let's, let's zero in on that because I want to talk about how a platform like Kickstarter uses it a little differently. And I want to talk about how that one decision of how they use it 
motivates the design of the entire site. Right, and that's such a huge site. And when most of us think about crowdfunding, we tend to think of Kickstarter first. So have a listen to Charles Adler explain why he built it. He's a designer. Um, and he's also one of the original founders. I just felt that it was unfair that people that I felt were exceptionally talented were not given the platform to do their best work. The experience that we were trying to create was a single voice for the creative person to connect with their audience in a new way. Yeah, it's definitely a marketplace for creators. And there are all kinds of amazing ideas on there <laughs> and also some terrible ones too. Yeah. Uh, but it's really easy to browse around Kickstarter. It's a bit like going window shopping. Yeah, and when they launched in 2009, they decided that the user experience of that kind of browsing that you do in the platform, maybe you could use a little boost. So they decided that creators don't get any of the funding that's been pledged to them until they reach their funding goal. Yeah, not only that, but if they fail to meet that funding goal, the project gets no money whatsoever. It's a bit cutthroat. But it's really clever. You know, so the idea for this all-or-nothing funding model that's effectively the kind of core of Kickstarter really came about with just some simple math, right? If you say it's going to cost X for you to produce Y, if you raise anything less than X, you just can't produce Y. To me, this is like an integrity test for anyone who wants to launch a project. It's like, how much money do I really need to complete this documentary I'm working on or a mass-produce a gadget or a rain jacket or whatever. It also doubles as a community building tool. And that's what I find interesting. It makes the whole process really exciting. So one thing that you end up seeing as a project is nearing its time limit, the creator is hyped up because they haven't quite made it yet. Like they so deeply want to make this thing and bring this thing to you and you're almost there. You're almost there. So they're going to fight tooth and nail to get those last backers to come through. And if you've made it, you're just excited that you've made it and you want other people to participate. You know, I've actually backed a handful of projects myself on Kickstarter. Yeah, me too. Some of them shipped and some of them failed. Yeah, me too. But it was always really interesting how my decision to give money is as valuable as my decision to not give money. Exactly. And a lot of projects fail on Kickstarter. It's something over 60%. Wow. But when it works, it really works. People like you and me have pledged $4.5 billion to successful projects that have shipped. The way Charles puts it is he says Kickstarter's UX overall, it really does help people give more. Effectively, what we've done is through design shorten the cycle from an empathetic reaction to something, in this case a pitch video, and your ability to support them. We're talking about giving and charity, but... Really, Kickstarter is as much a place to shop for a cool new thing as it is to support a creative project. Yeah. So it's not completely about altruism and feeling good about giving. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's some classic commerce backing a lot of these projects. The idea that you get something as much as you give something. But, you know, you're still supporting creators who are trying things that they can't do without support. Now, Patreon is another good example of this. And they're the third site that we're looking at. So what I know about Patreon is that 
we are funding an artist there more than you're funding a product. That's right. And I want to talk about how Patreon has made one small design change recently and how that one change has put a bunch more money in the artist's pockets. Okay, let's hear it. The problem Jack wanted to solve with Patreon is basically allowing fans to have like a direct connection to creators so that creators can make a living and create what enriches a patron's life. So this is Ursula Sage. She's a director of product at Patreon. And the Jack she's referring to is Jack Conte. He's the founder of the platform. So let me take you back, Koi. It's 2013. Jack is a struggling independent musician, and he's doing stuff like posting music videos on YouTube. Uh, videos like this one. Okay, it's like some kind of mad scientist's laboratory with an animatronic robot that is slightly disturbing. <laughs> yeah, Jack put a ton of work into it. The song, by the way, is called Pedals. And when he puts the video out, he already has hundreds of thousands of subscribers on YouTube. But he's only making like 50 bucks a month in revenue. Uh, wait, just 50 bucks from YouTube's ad sharing model? That's where the money's coming from? Yeah, yeah. So he thinks there's got to be a better idea, right? And he comes up with one. His idea was, why not go straight to patrons, straight to fans and ask them for their support? Patreon is really different from Kickstarter here in that it's really more of a membership model, right? You sign up to become a patron, basically. Yeah, you do now, but it wasn't designed like that at first. The first version of Patreon included a paper content model. So a patron would decide, I'm going to pay a dollar or two dollars for every new piece of content that from here on out the creator publishes. As the concept of membership became more ubiquitous, our product evolved, and so did our messaging. So that kind of evolution in the product and in the messaging, that undoubtedly spurred a redesign to encourage those kinds of things, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that meant breaking up with a few assumptions. Right, like that paper content model that Ursula mentioned. Yes, but recently they've realized that for new fans who come to Patreon for the first time, the ones who haven't converted into members or patrons yet, it turns out that they don't actually need to be sold on the value of the artist at all. What does that mean? It, it means that they actually know why they're here. Usually when they come, they're already familiar with the creator when they come to Patreon. So they just want to know, where do I give the money? And they want to choose the options that they have. They don't need to, to read um, all the descriptions. So before a lot of effort was put into, you know, promoting the artist's voice, the message they wanted to share about themselves and why they should get funded. Last year, Patreon redesigned the creator's pages. So now the artist's content is previewed much lower on the page. The new landing page really leads with the memberships and the, the offering as opposed to the description of the creator that they can customize and who they are and what they do. That's a bit counterintuitive. I mean, they're deprioritizing the artist's message and the artist's content, and they're asking for the money first yeah. up front, right? Yeah. It's sort of like the inverse of how e-commerce works. You're totally right. It does sound counterintuitive, maybe even counterproductive. But as I was alluding to earlier, this small design change they made, it's making more money for the artists. 
we've been able to measure experiments impact and in the last nine months uh, with the focus we've had on the fan landing page we were able to lift conversion by over 30 percent over 30 percent means millions and millions of dollars in the pockets of creators that weren't there before So that's millions more to a platform that's already quite successful. It's a platform used by 150,000 artists so far. And and since launching, they've raised about a billion dollars for them. That is pretty amazing. But Dom, what about Jack? I mean, in addition to creating this global crowdfunding platform, did he ever get paid for those music videos he was making? Jack Conte? Well, I can't speak to the success of the videos themselves, but he's doing just fine, I think. He's got another indie band now called Pomplamoose. He runs it with his wife, Natalie Don, and Pomplamoose is on Patreon. They have 3,000 or so patrons, and it pulls in about $17,000 a month. Geez, $17,000 a month? <laughs> That's a lot of grapefruit. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a lot of grapefruit. So we've looked at three examples of crowdfunding platforms, and they showcase how personalization, transparency, and, well, basically joy help designers build experiences that make us want to give. Yeah, and what I like about Patreon specifically is how they've learned that it's okay to design an experience that just straight up asks for money right away. Yes, and with Kickstarter... The way that entire site is designed, which is around that all-or-nothing funding model, it really adds a kind of tension to the process where everyone's racing together to bring something to life. And it works for them, but I don't know that we could take the all-or-nothing model and apply it to, you know, a charity site like Chuffed. Yeah, that's true, too. And I can imagine that the optional donation experience that Chuffed uses that really wouldn't work for Patreon or for Kickstarter. Hmm. And not only that, but there's a really cool natural pairing going on here. Like the act of giving is an act of empathy. And we always talk about how good designers design with empathy. So these two goals mesh together really nicely. Yeah. And then there's also how crowdfunding creates a more intimate relationship between people giving and people receiving. So with these tools, well, you brought it up with Chuffed. They make the giving process much more of a one-to-one experience. And that's actually something that Ryan and Shay and their daughter Dorothy from the top of the show, they realized that about GoFundMe. It's like, here's a face, here's a story of why this person needs a donation. I think it kind of brings down charity to a more molecular level. Dorothy, hello. She's napping. And who can resist an adorable baby? So, Dom, what do we have coming up next on Wireframe? We're, we're having a binge session. We're going to look at the design of on-demand video streaming services. Like on Netflix or Amazon Prime, right? Yeah, yeah, or HBO or Quibi or Peacock, all of those things. We're, we're going to explore if and to what extent an interface matters. Right, so the question is, how much does the design matter if the content is really what people are there for? So I'll see you then, Koi, and uh, I'll bring some snacks. Okay, looking forward to it. See ya. Dominic Girard is one of our producers, and I'm Koi Vin. To learn more about how XD can help you design your next project, head to adobe.ly slash tryxd. 
This is Wireframe, an original podcast from Adobe XD.